This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live audience on the 25th of September, 2019. The topic was navigating return to work after mental illness. On the panel we have Polly, our lived experience representative. Dr. Sam Harvey, Associate Professor at the Black Dog Institute. Jay Spence, CEO of UPRIZE. Dr. Naresh Verma, psychiatrist and occupational physician. And chairing this evening, we have Dr. Carol Newell. Okay, hi everybody. I'm Carol Newell and welcome to our Expert Insights podcast today, um, Navigating Return to Work After Mental Illness. Our amazing panel tonight who have kindly given up their evening uh, to serve on this panel on this particular topic. Um, so we've got them up here, but what I might get them to do is to introduce themselves. Um, so we might start with Sam at the end, he's in the hot seat. Um, so we'll get each of our panelists to introduce themselves, their titles, their profession, and also a little bit about their experience and background in um, return to work issues. So Sam, we'll okay. start with you. Um, my name's Sam Harvey, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm the chief psychiatrist here at the Black Dog Institute. Uh, so I, I see patients up in our clinic one day a week. The other four days a week, I run a program of research looking at the links between work and mental health. So we um, do a lot of research trying to understand about why mental health has become the leading cause of sickness absence, why it's particularly hard to get people back to work and what type of interventions might be able to help. Um, that was research that I started doing in the UK um, and then brought over with me to Sydney when I came here in 2012. Fantastic, thanks Sam. Jay. So um, my background is I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I was working in private practice um, probably up until, I don't know have been, maybe 2013 and then in 2016, um, I started a company which, which was about mental health technology. And that company now provides um, employee assistance programs that are technology-based back to organisations. So part of the capacity that I um, wanted to be able to talk in was some of the experience that I had when I was working in private practice, treating people under work cover. Um, and then transitioning over to supporting people to return to work using the digital components of return to work interventions that we're using in the organisation that we, I currently work in. Okay, fantastic. And then we have Naresh. Hi, my name is Naresh Verma. I'm a psychiatrist and I'm also an occupational physician. And my interest in mental health and return to work sort of marries up those two areas of medicine. Um, so I do, I work clinically in private practice and I do one day a week of occupational psychiatry, so work, workers' comp, both treatment and assessment, and medical legal work. And my research project was done with Sam um, over the last sort of year or two, um, and that was looking at um, <coughs> occupational outcomes in unipolar depression. So we're hoping to get that published soon. And we have Polly. Hi, uh, my name's uh, Polly. I am a social science scientist by um, profession. Um, I've worked in the field for over 20 years, um, initially in a clinical context, so across a pretty broad spectrum of um, service um, 
provision areas, so domestic violence, um, child protection, alcohol and other drugs, um, youth homelessness, then moved into um, research. So for the past um, 10 or so years, um, I've uh, worked across, again, a very broad spectrum of, um, of health and welfare um, sectors in a research and evaluation capacity. I have a master's in evaluation. Um, and I also live with um, complex mental health issues. I'm a black dog um, peer educator. Um, I've had a lot of experience in um, what we're talking about this evening in terms of work, return to work um, processes. Uh, and um, also in a, from physical health issue um, uh, perspective in, in conjunction with um, mental health stuff. Thanks, Polly. Now, that was interesting you mentioned that, you know, physical illness actually played into it. And when we think about the topic on return to work, it's, you know, traditionally been related to physical illness, but we know that mental health illness is playing a significant role. So this is the question for Sam and any of the other panelists as well. Has that changed the narrative and process around return to work with mental health getting into the mix? And when did that start to change? And well, I think, you know, if you look over the last 20 years, there's been a pretty dramatic change in the reason that are listed on sickness absence certificates or work cover certificates. Um, 10, 15 years ago, musculoskeletal disorders were the major cause. Um, there's been a gradual reduction in, in that and mental health has risen both as a relative and an absolute cause of, of long-term sickness absence. So you now have a situation where anywhere between 35 and 40% of long-term sickness absence is attributed to mental health. There's pretty good evidence that that is still an underestimate, that there's still, there's a lot of people who have a combination of both physical and mental health problems and there's still a stigma around mental health so people often put physical health on the certificate even though it might be the, the comorbid mental health thing that's the real thing, keeping them away from work or preventing them returning. So I think it's like there has just been a gradual weight of the numbers gradually bringing it to policymakers' attention and, and you know, when you now have governments looking at the cost of incapacity benefits, when you have insurers looking at the cost of their balance sheet, mental health is now coming out as the number one cause because it's the most common cause. And also we know that if somebody's away from work for mental health, the number of days they're away is longer. So um, the maths of it mean that it ends up costing disproportionately more than any other condition. And how has organisations how have the organisations been responding to it? I mean, do you feel like they're prepared or has it been shocking for a lot of organisations that suddenly mental health is becoming prevalent? I, I, it probably depends which organisation you're talking about. I, I guess if you take it from the highest possible level, I, I, I think, you know, there's, there's four different people often involved in the discussion. There's, there's obviously um, the individual worker and whoever the team are managing them. But then you've also often got insurers and you've also got the employer involved. And I think they have all been on different trajectories in terms of getting their head around that. I, I think if you look historically, the system for workers' compensation and return to work was set up around physical illness. So you have a lot of return to work advisors in organisations, health and safety people in organisations who have a background in physical health, background in physiotherapy or things like that. So 
you know, I think it takes time for them to get more confident speaking about mental health and thinking about it. Similarly, you've got clinicians, and I think, you know, as, as a psychiatrist, I spent, um, I spent six years doing postgraduate training in psychiatry. I didn't have a single educational session about workplace or return to work throughout that. Um, and I suspect clinical psychology training is, is the same. And so I think mental health hasn't necessarily adapted very well to this either. Whereas, you know, if you, you know, the people who train in um, orthopedics do get good training about that because it's recognised as being part of their job. I don't think mental health has caught up with that yet. So I think all the players have been taking time to adjust. Yep, absolutely. So I'm one of those people who went through that training and never had any workplace training. And so there's potentially some misconception around return to work issues and work-related issues. So this is a question for everyone. Um, as a mental health educated practitioner, look, it's something that I've shied away from. And it's maybe because that I think, you know, if I am practicing in that space, who's my client? Is, is it that I have to work for the organization? Am I the advocate for the client? Um, can anybody clarify that? Is that a misconception or do they, the players work pretty well together? Jay or <laughs> <laughs> I think um, it's important you brought up that point of who, who, who do I advocate for? Because, you know, advocacy, I think, means that you want the best possible mental health outcome for the person, for the client, patient. Um, that doesn't necessarily always mean that, you know, you do whatever the client wants that doesn't necessarily mean that you do whatever the company wants either. Um, I see my role as giving the patient the best possible advice about getting the way to get the best possible outcome for them. Sometimes I tell patients, look, whatever, I tell them, look, at the end of the day, if you, for example, want to put in a workers' comp claim, that's fine, but you need to go into it with eyes wide open. You need to know what you're in getting into, what you're in for, um, because that might sway your opinion as to whether you put in a claim or not, for example. Um, and if they do, you know, I'm happy to support them um, as much as I think is reasonable. Um, sometimes people will say, look, you know, I think I'll have a think about it. Sometimes, and then they don't put in a workers' comp claim, for example. Other times they'll say, look, I put in a workers' comp claim. Um, and they, they feel better because of doing that. You know, it gives them some money, gives them uh, ongoing treatment, all that sort of stuff, and that's good. Um, and other people, the, the people who get, the, I think, the worst outcomes are people who um, get caught up in long-running workers' comp claims um, and, and lose sight of the bigger picture, which is their mental health. Because the process, it's not a perfect system, but it is a system. Um, and I guess, you know, I see my role as working within the system to get the best outcome for the person. Can I, I'd, I'd like to speak yeah. to that, um, and I, I think you really um, encapsulate where probably the biggest issue is, is that it is incredibly difficult for someone to have the confidence to go ahead with putting in a claim, um, regardless of whether it's um, a valid concern or that, you know, that uh, the likelihood of a successful outcome, the process itself is incredibly stressful. Um, and it's geared towards the employer. There is 
there are very few um, protections around what that process looks like, feels like, what you have to do when you go through it, and the exacerbation of your um, condition as it stands. You're in a very vulnerable um, state. You may have very few supports around you. You may not be financially um, capable of supporting yourself um, being off work for that period of time. And um, certainly in my experience, both um, in a clinical capacity as well as um, uh, having been off work and, and been in treatment, um, never, not one clinician, mental health nurse or psychiatrist recommended that I, um, just being off work for, for longer periods of time, disclose to my employer as to why I was off work. Um, and so, I've, and I've experienced um, disclosure and non-disclosure, but um, I've I've gone through the independent medical assessment um, process um, for time off work and re on return to work plan, and it is one of the most invasive, um, demoralising, terrifying um, processes that someone can be faced with um, when it's being instructed um, when it's coming from the employer. Um, especially if you've not disclosed what um, your um, health issues are and why you've needed to have time off work. Um, the, I think the level of responsibility um, around within that system um, requires far more accountability in terms of what damage that does um, to people who are already really unwell, um, having to undergo that process and being very, very, very concerned about um, whether their information is going to be um, become available to their employers. Okay. So my throw this at you, Jay, which is a little bit unprepared, but um, you work in EAP. Are there any protections for staff in terms of things like disclosure and confidentiality? Like, how does it work within an organisational setting? I mean, Polly has talked about being quite afraid that somebody's going to find out about diagnosis if she was to speak to anyone. So what, what happens there? What are some of the protections that are available for staff? Yeah, so I don't think I can really represent the exact protections for what an employee is, but I, what I can talk a bit about is your original question about this slightly awkward marriage that's like a four-party marriage between a patient, an employer, an insurer, um, and then oftentimes like a whole host of allied health people who are involved in the treatment as well. And I think it, you know, Clearly, that's a very challenging mix of people to put together when you've got different agendas. I think that what I'm seeing, having done the clinical work where I was working in private practice supporting people and then now starting to work with insurers, is um, it's still in its infancy in terms of an employer and an insurer's understanding of how to support someone in return to work. So if you think about a bell curve of early adopters versus late adopters when it comes to mental health, you've got a bunch of pioneering companies that are really focusing on best practice and how to do it and they're generating data and Sam's collecting that data and helping to translate that into a research story to get the late adopters over. But then you hear horror stories from the late adopters who are, who are often mismanaging the return to work because they lack the knowledge of how to get someone back properly and they do like surprise um, assessments and stuff, which is really destructive. However, the insurers, I think, are in a position to, to kind of really do a lot of good work here in educating employers because they've got to pay the bills eventually. 
And my experience is that they, that the insurers that I've met at least have been really motivated to try to make positive changes in this area. Um, but the tension is, is because historically you've got scandals like the common sure problem, there's huge amounts of distrust from patients back towards the insurers and the employers, and then they're left out of the loop to support them in their return to work. So ultimately everybody has to work together, but it's still too early to kind of overcome the, you know, some of the trauma that people have been through um, and just get past that and kind of be happy families when it is a bit of a you know, strange marriage between four people. In, in answer to your original question, though, I think just in terms of ticking off that thing, and it varies a bit from different st states and jurisdictions, but there should be that protection there around disclosure. It varies a bit depending on whether it's a work cover claim or whether it's someone who's off on sickness absence. Mm. But the, the the basic legal premise that's there is that the worker should be um, should be protected against discrimination from disclosing a health condition once they're in the workplace. Yeah. But um, that sort of comment comes with massive caveats because the reality is we've got you know we've done studies where you you go and provide case vignettes to HR people and you modify whether this person has diabetes or depression on their past history and it absolutely influences behaviour still much more than other diagnoses and it does have an impact on promotion and things like that. So we know there are those consequences. Um, it's a really interesting discussion around the whole disclosure question um, and there are some groups now that are developing decision aid tools for patients to use that, that will hopefully come online soon. But you know, if you've got a complex decision to make of weighing up different options, so the place these developed were in breast cancer treatment, where now there's this idea that actually you really do have to weigh up the risks and benefits of some of the treatments, particularly early things. And so if you design a decision aid tool that takes people through, that teaches them, educates them about the pros and the cons and weighing them up, it doesn't, it's agnostic about what the end decision should be but actually you allow people to make a much better informed decision. And, and so there have been some trials of that amongst people with depression, deciding whether to tell their workplace or not. And if you give people the information about what the legal protection is, what it can't protect, what the reality is, what the benefits of their workplace knowing, then they are able to make a better decision. Yeah, it sounds like there's a little bit of psychoeducation in that decision-making process as well, because they get to know what their protections are rather than... Yeah, I think I think people need to be informed, but you know, very often there's not a right decision, and it really is pretty individual. And there are some people who I suggest not telling their work, and others who are, I think it's useful. I I I just want to comment on the um, the reference to what discrimination looks like, mm. and and it is not legal to discriminate because of mm. mental health unless um, the requirements of your job. Correct. Yes. You know. If, if you're a, it's not a fit, if you you're a pilot and you're taking right. very sedating exactly, medication. exactly. But that doesn't translate into the majority of workforces. Of course, there's a spectrum of um, of competency there with mm. our managers and HR and all of the work that's being done around that um, and funding and policy decisions at the federal level. We're seeing that, but I I think that there is. A, an incredibly long way to go before you would have um, a, a workforce that would feel very comfortable with um, popping their hands up and and making that a part of their um, their file at at work and um, being okay to call and say, look, I'm, I'm you know 
today's not a great day, um, can't come into work. It's so with, without feeling that there'll be consequences no. attached to that. And I so, think, I think yeah. you have to have an honest conversation about that. Yeah. There were studies done in the 1990s that showed the only condition with more stigma in the workplace was HIV. I actually suspect if we repeated that now, mental health would, would carry more stigma than that because of the work that's been done around that. And people just need to know their, their rights as well. You know, with any sort of work meeting, you're entitled to take a support person. That could be your partner or whoever, yeah. right? And people, you know, this is where, you know, when things are sprung upon them, they kind of, you know, you kind of don't really know mm. what to do. Um, so my advice to employers is always don't spring these things upon people. That's just bad, bad, bad. Yeah. Um, to the employers should always, you know, with these meetings say, look, you know, please, you're welcome to bring a support person. And, you know, I encourage all my patients to take a support person, whoever they may be, to these meetings. And the third thing is, I think, for employers to understand that, you know, every case is individual. Um, you know, um, what works for one case in, in mental health in particular won't necessarily, you know, that style approach may not necessarily work. Um, and, you know, sometimes um, employers will kind of, you know, assume that the person's malingering or lying or whatever. And I think that's something which, you know, really we need to educate them mm. about. Nourish, can I ask, um, I have had the experience of um, having undergone um, several IMAs where certain practitioners or the assessors have refused um, uh, me to have a, a support person present. Um, the physician, yes, yeah, sorry, um, that it's not their um, practice and they don't allow I anyone do. else. Mm. Um, so I'm just asking yeah. if, if, in terms of Look, your. The, I do. Yeah. I, I think it's better. I think it protects the person. I think yes. it protects me as well. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I, I was horrified yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that this was yeah. something that does happen and, yeah. and was known to be quite a common thing amongst certain practitioners. Look, yeah. I, I think some uh, IMAs, independent medical assessors, will kind of have that. I think that it might be kind of old school, you know, might kind of think, look, this is a purely medical legal assessment and, you know, there's no space for any sort of, you know, support, compassion, which, you know, seriously, I don't agree with. You know, I think to any assessment, uh, any workplace meeting, every person should, is certainly entitled to, and should take along a support person if they feel it's needed. Um, and usually I'll tell the support person, look, you know, I'd, if, you know, um, the, the person should answer the questions as much as they can, uh, rather than support person, you know, answering on their behalf per se, but they're there to, to support them. I think it's important, especially because, you know, you want to make sure that the person leaves the assessment not worse off than when they came in, and the support right. person's handy there. The other comment I'd make is that in terms of disclosure, for non-work-related Ill injury, illness, the employer really is entitled to know the fitness for work. Are you fit, unfit, or fit uh, with restrictions? Full stop. You know, they're not really entitled to know much else unless you choose to tell them. Um, and, you know, I tell my patients when I see them for medical legal assessment, I say, look, you know, if you don't need, just assume that whatever you tell me goes in the report. Um, if you don't want me to know, don't tell me, right? And is that different legally for work cover, then the employer is entitled to know the nature of the injury, aren't they? Yeah, yep. 
uh, on, a, on, the, you know, on the certificate, on the work cover certificate, you sign the, when you sign the thing, yeah. it says that you give your workplace and any other delegated representatives like the insurer um, access to all your all your info. So the whole return to works discussion is very different in those two pathways, yeah. and, and I think it's worth kind of just sort of flagging that and intermittently, right. be, be not not. Yeah, I mean in this discussion, right. because you know the whole disclosure thing ceases to become a relevant discussion in the if someone's off on work cover. Right. Okay. Um, speaking about work cover, Jay, uh, what's typically involved in the treatment of patients under work cover or income protection? Um, so again, I just want to make the caveat, it's been a while since I've done treatment in private practice, but the, yeah, so like my, I think the key distinction is, and I can just probably talk a bit more anecdotally, that the temptation was to for me as a, as a clinician to treat someone for their mental health and for the, because that's what I was trained for. But what WorkCover is really interested in is functional and return to work around functional goals. So the evidence around return to work interventions also really interestingly doesn't strongly support um, psychological interventions. So the problem solving is a far more effective intervention and cognitive behaviour therapy for the majority of work cover presentations. Um, be interested if you want to chime in on this, but the, there's a number of different reviews which looks at things like adjustment disorders or common men, you know, mental disorders, really like what those reviews were pointing towards was mixed or no evidence for things like CBT, which is, you know, where myself as a clinician is going to use as a starting point when I'm working with someone, and much stronger evidence for problem-solving interventions which specifically work through each of the barriers to return to work. So what work cover, again, this is a while ago since I did that training, but like my memory of what they were really focused on is, you know, have you got goals which are smart goals which are oriented towards returning the person to work, whereas the, the, the balance for me was thinking about this person in terms of their mental health and what I saw the barriers being in terms of their mental health um, and trying to figure out, you know, perhaps some kind of creative report writing so I can get justification to keep my sessions going for those things. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I don't know if that's your kind of read on the evidence as well for... Yeah, look, I think there's, there, there's two things there. That there's pretty overwhelming evidence now that whether we're talking about depression or anxiety or PTSD, we, we've got a good collection of treatments that we know work in terms of symptom reduction. And, and that tends to be what we, what we sort of base our trials of treatments on. Do they reduce symptoms? What we're finding is that those treatments that reduce symptoms don't seem to necessarily get people back to work. In some cases, there seems to be a big lag between the symptoms reducing and their functional recovery, but in other cases, there just doesn't seem to be an association there at all. That seems to be more prominent amongst mental health and with physical health problems, but exactly the same thing is, is there with, with some physical health problems as well. Where that, um, and, and you know, it's interesting to think about what that's about. Is it the case that the treatments that we use for depression, so antidepressants, is it the case that, the, that they are only treating a subsection of depressive symptoms? They're treating people's mood, they might be helping with their sleep, 
but the things that are keeping them away from work around their cognitive function, their motivation, their energy levels, that the antidepressants are less effective at treating those sort of symptoms? Or is it actually that, no, it, the antidepressants are kind of covering off on most of the treatments, but actually the barriers preventing people getting back to work once they've been off work for a period of time are not necessarily those core depression symptoms. They're all of the other things that go along with once you've been away from work for a period of time in terms of the confidence and the anxiety and all those other things that we know are going to be a big problem. And I think at the moment, the, the feeling is it's probably a combination of the two of them. Um, what happens under work cover, and Jay's exactly right, that most of the clinicians who are treating people under work cover, their modus operandi is, is, is of treating symptoms. And, and so they focus on symptoms and then work cover keep asking them about fitness for work and they sort of view that as some form of harassment and they just sort of say, no, not fit for work. Then the insurers get frustrated by that and they bring in some third party kind of occupational rehabilitation provider who's doesn't really know what's happening with the symptomatic treatment, but is all about function. You end up with this sort of, these two things operating in parallel, which is immensely unhelpful. And um, what the evidence suggests works is where you can integrate that functional recovery in with the symptomatic treatment. Um, but that requires often a real shift in the clinicians who are doing the treatment and also to some degree with, you know, the patients being brought along on the journey as well of actually, well, you know, yes, we're going to undertake these 10 sessions with you. Let's have a think about what we want to achieve in that. You know, yes, we want to focus on these symptoms, but we also want to think about functionally what we want to be able to get you to do. And that, that is definitely a shift from what has traditionally happened. And, and so just practically about what that looks like is... So I, there was a patient that I was seeing who I conceived of his return to work barrier being severe social anxiety. Um, but what I knew needed to occur in the context of work cover wasn't to sit down and run him through CBT for social anxiety. It was to organise the workplace to start to solve the barriers in the work setting so that that person could return to work. So it was partially some, you know, light, CBT light, but the majority of the work where traction started to occur was really about facilitating the workplace to be much better involved and to be better educated and to start linking up the case managers and the resources that the insurers had so that we could solve the social anxiety in the workplace setting by having them do the exposure settings through the meetings and the mediation and all of those types of things. So it was a, it was a shift between you know, having my thoughts around, okay, I've just got to treat this person for their social anxiety, I've got my 12-session protocol, here we go, um, and I'll do all my exposure outside of the workplace versus, until the end, versus starting the exposure in the workplace through this functional focus. All right, so it sounds like what you're saying is that fitness um, for work isn't about being symptom-free, that you can still be mentally unwell and have a diagnosis and still be able to go back to work. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think the... The traditional model is I'm going to get this person as well as I can get them, and then once we're at that point, we'll sit down and have a think about return to work. And um, that we, we know that normally doesn't work. And so, yes, it's a, that thing about, well, how can we be thinking about... If, if the patient wants to return to work, if that's an agreed part of the treatment plan, then how can we incorporate that into what we're doing? But the problem is it runs against the grain of the entire... Of, of the entire sector and the way it's set up. 
the way the whole thing's set up is that I do my work here and then I go see my doctor here and you're my doctor, don't you dare speak to my work because that's what I, you know, I want to keep these things separate and, and, um, and it's far from simple and I think the solutions probably go beyond the re-educating of all the different parties. I think there probably is going to have to be some systematic change in the way in which the system works to actually get it happening. Um, so, you know, I think there's this conception that you know, work is, um, could potentially pose a risk for mental health. But in fact, it sounds like what you're talking about is that work can sometimes play a protective role for mental health as well. What are some of the factors in work that can really contribute to mental well-being? So in terms of encouraging people to return to work, is it relationships, is it? So they, well, it, it's, it's annoyingly, um, this will be an annoying, typical academic, wishy-washy answer in that it can kind of do both. Because it's not, it's not that there's a perception that work can cause mental ill health. We know that there are things in the workplace that can be a risk factor for mental ill health. And so that perception is, is, is real. But it becomes that dynamic. Once you, and this is part of the problem with the work cover system. Once you have a system that encourages everybody to be thinking about what are the ways in which the workplace caused this person to become unwell. You've immediately set up the idea that the workplace is this damaging, toxic environment. And so it's of no surprise that when you suggest that the individual needs to go back to that, that's, you know, that's an anxiety-provoking thing because you're sending me back to the thing that made me unwell. Um, and in some cases that's true and it is to be avoided. But in general, the evidence suggests that, that work is good for your mental health. And, and if you want evidence for that, you just have to look at the mental health consequences of being out of work. And for all of the workplace risk factors that we talk about, all of them pale into insignificance compared to the risk of losing your job or being at risk of losing your job. Um, if we look at the global financial crisis, there's evidence that, uh, particularly within North America and Europe, there was an extra 5,000 suicides that can be attributed to the global financial crisis and people losing their jobs or feeling they're at risk of losing their jobs. And of course, part of that, a big part of that is financial, but it's also about all the other things we get from work. And there's been lots of surveys of people who've suffered from mental health that say that being at work is one of the things they really want more than most other things. So we know being back at work is normally a good outcome. The, going back to your original question, what is it that helps? Um, and what is it that creates a mentally healthy workplace and a workplace that is good to be back at? Um, there's some characteristics around the job itself that are important. So, you know, having a job that has variety, that gives you purpose, that you enjoy doing, that makes it a good place to be back at. Um, there's also stuff about the environment. Having uh, a workplace where the people around you, both your managers and your co-workers, are a supportive presence, not a, a pathological presence, is a good thing. Um, and also having an organisation where there's a culture of inclusivity, a, a culture where people like to be there, that makes it good. So you have those different levels. And uh, sometimes you see patients that are lucky that they have that, that they've got a good job and they've got a manager that's not a dick and it's really useful for them to be able to work with that. Other times you don't have that situation and you have to think about how can you start to modify it yep. from an individual patient point of view 
Um, and if you're running a workplace, then you can look at it and think, well, which ones of these things can I modify so that I know when my workers become unwell, it's a better place for them to come back to. Is this not part of the broader um, discussion around um, mental health first aid training, heads up, the, um, the policies and, and funding direction um, that the government is heading in and it is about creating mentally um, healthy workplaces. We understand the enormity of what that looks like. We are only just scratching the surface in terms of um, awareness raising and stigma reduction. We, you know, um, and, we'll, and, and I think looking at the high prevalence disorders, mainly anxiety and depression, not looking at more complex um, or comorbid mm. conditions, um, we're still in infancy of seeing workplaces really being uh, taking this stuff on well, as opposed to just kind of doing the tokenistic ticker box um, uh, approaches that they, they sort of need to or, or be seen uh, to be doing. I think that it's a cultural shift that needs to happen um, broadly at, a, um, at an individual level, almost from the bottom up, um, as opposed to waiting for the top down. Because if you're, if you're gonna wait for um, organisation managers, you know, we know that you need a champion in there, um, looking at workplace change, ensuring those environments are safe, managing um, you know, workloads, all of those things. It's the exception to see that done well, as opposed to the expectation. We are expecting that. That's what, you know, if, if we want to, you know, the Productivity Commission inquiry that's um, being undertaken at the moment, how do people with mental health issues, you know, how can they participate more in community and workforce? Where recommendations from other inquiries and commissions over the years around mental health um, uh, and, and returning to work and participation and, and recovery have been ignored. Um, and same questions are still being asked. Um, it's, it, it is an incredibly frustrating um, ferret wheel of, of seeing the same things going on and on and on and on. Um, same questions being asked, the same solutions being offered, the evidence base, the professionals are all you know, informing this. But we aren't seeing that at a practice, like at a day-to-day -day level. I would argue that the majority of workplaces would struggle to implement properly those elements of a mentally healthy workplace. I think I would agree with that. You know, I think, um, and you know, there's an interesting discussion about why that is. I, I definitely think we now have an idea of what a mentally healthy workplace looks like and that is beginning to filter through to some of the stuff happening, you know, within Australia. We've got this Mentally Healthy Workplace Alliance that's going to be, over the next few years, producing quite detailed guidance for employers. We've got the World Health Organisation wanting to do that at a global level. So these things are coming together. But it is quite hard to translate that into what actually happens on the shop floor of a workplace. I, I think the one thing I would say in terms of this return to work discussion if you could do one thing in a workplace to aid return to work, it would be making sure that the managers in that workplace have had good practical training about what their role should be and how to do it. And I'm not talking about mental health first aid there, I'm talking about good practical training about how to manage return to work and manage mental health problems. And you know, once you've got a worker who's sick, that's the most important factor from a workplace point of view, I think, in terms of getting people back to work.
And before we go to questions, we haven't heard from Naresh in a while, because you work quite a lot with organizations as well. And Sam's saying that manager training is really important. What are some of the strategies you've seen where you've seen organizations deal with return to work really well? What were some of the factors they incorporated? Look, I think firstly... Um, Can you think of an organization? Look, look, <laughs> Do you need a moment? <laughs> they don't have so, certain organizations are more mature, a bit more mature than others. Um, small organisations struggle because small organi small companies will say, look, you know, we've only got 10, 15 people, you know, how do we do this? How do we involve a rehab consultant and whatever? So I guess, you know, one kind of out-of-the-box solution is if you've got at an industry level, you can get, um, you know, sort of um, uh, EAP rehab coordinators and stuff who work across particular industries rather than, you know, uh, working for a particular organisation to help. Other things would be, you know, things like the health and fitness safety team reporting directly to the board of a company, as opposed to, um, you know, so that you don't, they don't have to necessarily meet key performance indices, which can be manipulated by management, things like that. You know, these are sort of, you know, bigger sort of uh, pitches. But really, what it, you know, really. In order to get a good outcome, you need a supervisor, manager, person in, you know, in a senior position who is empathetic, understands, whose default uh, setting isn't to question um, the person, but whose role is really to understand, um, you know, what's going on. Who sits down to have a have a chat, you know, have a coffee with the person and say, look, you know, tell me what you want to tell me, right? Um, how is it that the work place can help you get better and um, and and make a, a return to work. I guess the other thing is, you know, touching on certain workplaces are toxic, you know, and the workplace the person doesn't want to go back there. That's okay, that that can work. But that doesn't mean that fundamentally work as a general term is is bad. You know, we know work is good for you. So you know appropriate work is good for you. If you can't go back to an employer um, that doesn't mean that you know you stop looking for work per se. The other thing is um, one of the best things that a workplace can do is provide suitable duties um, and meaningful suitable duties, commensurate with the person's experience and, and so on. So you're talking um, about reasonable adjustments to workplace yep, yeah. roles. Yep. Um, you know, and showing some um, creativity um, in that rather than saying, look, you know, it's either your doing your full duties and your substantive position at your full-time hours, or there's nothing else. The, the, you, so if you have that kind of black and white thinking, you tend to get worse outcomes. If you spring things upon people, you get worse outcomes. If you, um, you know, don't give people the opportunity, you know, don't offer them support people, um, don't make them aware of their own rights, you get worse outcomes. So the, the organizations which do better are the people who, you know, will encourage the, the person to say, look, you know, you can bring along a support person who won't spring things upon them and who will treat mental illness like any other illness um, and, and who's got, you know, a, a change management leader, you know, or even just someone who's, you know, a, a good bloke who can just uh, supervise a senior person who can sit down, have a, have a chat with them over coffee and, and just demystify the whole process and make it seem that and not make it seem that the whole thing is, is adversarial. Yeah, thanks for that, Naresh. It does, really does sound like the culture changes from the top, from the leaderships and from the managers, 
um, within the organisation. I think that's right. But, but I think clinicians have a role in, in what Naresh was talking about there in terms of adjustment of duties as well. And, and the system as well. Probably one of the more famous examples over the last sort of decade has been the shift in the UK where um, <clears throat> uh, they, they, they had this... So, you know, one of the things about the UK is because of the NHS, it's all very uniform across the country. So when I worked as a GP in the NHS, I was given my sick note booklet and it was a pre-printed booklet and that's what I used to give out sick notes. And um, they sort of, at one point, in terms of trying to think about this, they, they had a big review done by Carol Black and they ended up swapping all of those sick notes and changing them to something called a fit note. Um, and it was more than just a, a name change, in, in, although that was arguably quite important as well. But what it went from rather than just you as a, me as a GP just having to say, well, this person's either fit or not fit, the, the, the note demanded me to say, well, this is what they could do and this is what they can't do. Now, of course, GPs were then up in arms because they said, come on, I've got seven and a half minutes with this person and you want me to be working out what they can do and what they can't do. So then there had to be a whole process of getting that extra information to them and all of that. But, um, you know, I think within Europe now, there's been a number of countries that have done that and thought, well, what can we change in terms of the system to be able to encourage um, patients and clinicians to be having that discussion, to be thinking about what people can do, to be thinking about adjusted duties or partial sickness absence and... You know, there's good evidence when you get it working, it really does help. But you have to have the system, the training in place to make it work. Just changing the boxes on a form isn't enough, Absolutely. sadly, for the UK government. And just with that, Sam, um, also appropriately remunerating GPs. And, you know, if you're spending 20 minutes seeing a person, then, you know, you need to be paid for that at, at the right rate. If, if you're getting paid for five minutes, then you're not going to do a good job. I, I, I agree paying doctors more is an excellent idea. Um. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. Something I did for love recently is I, um, I you know, the, the, the person was a pretty high up executive who had been off work, who's been off work for a year, right? Um, and, you know, the brief was, look, we want to know about the fitness for work. So he went in there, but it was kind of, you know, uh, not strictly speaking medical legal, per, I mean, it was, but we went up there and we had a little bit of a team and we spent five hours with this guy, right? I mean, that's a luxury and I certainly didn't get paid for five hours worth of work but it made me feel good because it was an assessment but also we gave this person you know valuable advice which allowed him and us to come to a shared agreement about you know the the final recommendations to the company and you know we feel strongly that if they follow our advice that you know he'll get a good outcome and you know he'll get a good mental health outcome as well so it's, you know, you, you need time as well, you know. I, couldn't, I could have gone in, you know, done this thing in an hour and walked out. But, you know, we, you know, we, we went in there, we'd, spent, we'd set aside the whole day, and, and it's a one-off sort of thing. And we, we spent five hours and we could easily have chatted for a couple more hours. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks um, for that, Naresh. Actually, before we jump in, because I know we're having a really lively discussion, I do want to turn to the audience, because they may be waiting to ask some questions. So we're kind of into that segment um, of audience questions. Do we have any questions from the audience? Um, my name is Reina. Um, I just have a question. I'm a psychologist and I do work in a workers' compensation system for a while. And in the, the idea of return to work, you know, if we go back to value work, is it really 
really about return to work, money making, going back to that job, or is it actually about productivity? Because I think sometimes there is um, the idea that I have to go back to work, I have to do some work, and then job seeking, and then you know it becomes more you know worsening for the mental health state. Uh, and then when when we talked about it, what was the value behind this? Actually, productivity. So we look at okay, volunteer work, with, which is you know less probably less demanding. As we can probably start with that or going back to a role work or is it actually really about productivity you know right. which so I might, probably might throw that one to Dre and Polly do you want to yeah. say something about that um yeah. I I can respond to that through a couple of lenses certainly um a graduated return to work um doing some voluntary work absolutely has been something that worked for me um on occasion and was um supported by my um, workplace. It, unfortunately, though, is often a necessity to return to work um, financially. Um, there is absolutely nothing that can be done about that. Um, my costs just to function on a day-to-day -day basis are huge. I have to have the highest private health insurance cover if I want to, if I need a hospitalisation. Um, my um, uh, medications, one of my medications costs $200 a month. I have to see my psychiatrist, my psychologist, GP every 10 days for new scripts. Those out-of-pocket expenses are enormous and even going back to work part-time barely cover um, that. So it's this awful tension between, you know, having the the knowledge that you aren't well enough, really, um, to be going back and, and sort of having to, you're sort of putting that mask back on you. You, you also have the, the pressure on yourself to almost overachieve. You want, you're overcompensating for, um, you know, for fear of, of any of the side effects, I mean, this is another thing too, side effects of medications, um, disturbances to routine in terms of coming back to work, all of those things that, that um, come into play that employers possibly don't really take into account um, works against that, um, that model of you want to be productive and you want to be contributing and, and particularly for me, you know, the, the field that I work in is something that I'm incredibly passionate about and it's sort of part of my identity. So to be out of that has been, at, during those times, has been incredibly um, challenging. Um, but unfortunately, the you are putting yourself, you have to put yourself in risky situations sometimes and in, in needing to go back to work um, because you're you're screwed otherwise <clears throat> excuse me because of you know my out-of-pocket expenses just to exist not not talking about you know rent and food just um just to have myself alive basically Andrea, as a private practitioner you you know having worked in this area how have you dealt with that tension between that productivity but also your mental health well-being and values um yeah, I don't think there's any universal answer to it. Like, I, I would think about it on a case-by-case -case basis where I'd think, okay, is the person in front of me using their passivity as a defence and is that getting in the way of their recovery? I mean, there's a whole range of things which you could see show up in the session, you know, if you've got somebody that's consistently going to, like, a state of powerlessness and expecting the therapist to do the work and then expecting the workplace to do the work, then... 
obviously that needs to be part of the focus of treatment. Um, on the other side, if, you, if you've got um, a situation where that's not the defence and it's a whole range of other factors and you've got to work on that side. I, I, so I, I think there is all, if there is any universals though, I think that, I, I like what you said before, I think our role is to be challenging towards an insurer or an employer and a, or, and a patient. Like sometimes we need to tell them what they don't want to hear. And when you're working within the realities of insurance and that they, they have their cutoffs and you need to try to get somebody prepared to be back at work by that time, often I think that involves taking a challenging stance with somebody in order to get them back. At the same time, I totally recognise that um, you've got to walk before you run and there's lots of people that I worked with where just getting them back to any type of activity outside of the home was, was the start of it. Yeah. I noticed in your introduction you were talking about some um, online or e-health tools that you're using to encourage return to work. Can you talk a little bit more about what those are? Yeah, sure. So I moved over to this area because I think that that is part of a new tool set which is available to clinicians. And um, what these interventions are basically about is not, you know, not replacing therapy by any stretch, but becoming kind of an adjunct therapy or becoming an early intervention process. So what we did was look at, a, look at the research around return to work, come up with a couple of protocols which we thought were particularly successful. Most of them were in um, the Netherlands and Sweden. Those protocols were 90% problem solving strategies and then 10% pain fatigue management, some CBT stuff around return to work thoughts. Um, that protocol is more or less saying, let's rank all of the barriers that you have from return to work um, and then let's organise them from the easiest to solve to hardest to solve. Let's show you the process of taking small steps and experimenting around what works and doesn't work to build your confidence to get up and running. And you do a video that goes through about four minutes and then you pair that up with a phone call that goes for between half an hour to an hour with a return to work specialised psychologist who does a coaching model. Um, we're still in beta testing stages of that, but what we've learned so far is that that format seems to work well in the sense that it's, it's empowering for the person because they can't rely on the therapist as much. The therapist is basically just there to coach them through a skill, whereas the relationship from doing individual work is so much more empathic and close and, and um, bonded from which can tip into dependency, whereas the coaching model I think works better because there's a format and a, and a curriculum and they know where they're trying to get to because it's a digital intervention, they can see the next module coming up. Um, and the, the goal is what's my next barrier and how do I get past that barrier with the support of my um, clinician. Quick, quick follow-up, what do you yeah. mean when you say problem-solving skills in the context of therapy or potential? <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> like... It's a problem-solving um, protocol where module one teaches them, okay, here's how you define your problem and here's how you rank them from easy to hard. Let's rank them into the ones which you just can't solve right now at all, which ones are within your control. Let's start off with problem number one. Um, homework is to go out and have a crack at solving that and then we'll review whether or not it worked next week. Yeah, not, not, it's honestly not too much more complicated than that. Am I able to clarify? So this is your program price, the EAP, so it's only available to clients who are under your EAP services. 
Um, it's, it's not even within our prize. It's a research program which we're doing with the Black Dog Institute at the moment. But um, if you're trying to find resources, does Black Dog have anything like that at the moment which is freely available? Not that has that sort of focus on return to work. Uh, I mean, Black Dog has their My Compass program, which is an online CBT program, and that incorporates some problem-solving skills within it. Um, the other thing the Black Dog has is, is they have an app called Headgear that's freely available. Headgear has a behavioural activation approach, so uh, a core part of that is around um, you know, giving, taking people on a 30-day journey of, of um, understanding what are the things that they want to be doing and working towards them, and that's obviously dependent on the individual. But, um, you know, that's not quite the problem-solving therapy, but I think it has some overlaps with it. Um, so they're two things that are freely available that, that you can add on to stuff you're doing. The reason I ask is, is this working? There's been a lot of focus tonight on work cover schemes yeah. um, and work-related insurance schemes. I work in the life insurance industry and people mm -hmm. who are accessing um, their income protection. Mm. Um, I particularly work with people accessing through their super. So um, I work in a field that people are on a very low monthly financial benefit. Mm. Um, they often can't afford treatment. They can't afford to go and see the psychiatrist. They often can't afford a psychologist. So we're always trying to find ways to support people and to give them tools mm. to, for their recovery and to mm. help them with returning to work. Um, so I guess, yeah, it's it's been very focused on work cover schemes where mm. people get treatment, they get, you know, all of that support back to work. Um, whereas I'm, I guess, on a different side of um, insurance where I'm looking at supporting people who are often job detached, they often can't afford treatment. Mm. Um, they may have lodged a work cover claim that was declined. Mm. Um, and then where do they sit? So, Yes, that is true. And, and I think, um, you know, the only other one, and, and I'm sure there's, you know, there is, you know, there's the, what's it called? The one run out of Macquarie University. Mindspot. has got the federal government funding, so that doesn't require any gap payments. Yes. Um, there's This Way Up, which is the one out of St Vincent's, which sort of has a real focus around anxiety, stress, mixed depression and anxiety. Um, I don't know, Jay, if, you're, if someone's seeing their sort of, their community psychologist with their 10 sessions with a bit of a gap payment or whatever, what, what do you reckon the chances are that that person would have those skills around um, problem-based therapy, return-to-work type things? Yeah, I think it's lower. I, I totally get the predicament that you're in, but because my understanding is that um, life income protection insurers can't pay for treatments. No, the However, that we can't. <laughs> it's getting to be a very grey area. Mm -hmm. AIA is definitely paying for treatment. Yeah. <laughs> you are. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> Coaching program yeah, yeah. Um, with a lot of our members, um, where they do get um, seven sessions of coaching, um, and that doesn't count as we're, we're treatment. Stretching the, okay. the limits mm. the best we can. Yeah. Um, can I uh, just for the, for the right reasons? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> having I, I'm having access to income protection through my super and through AIA um, in previous years. The process of application is incredibly challenging. It, it can and be, yes. It, it is um, intense. I work in one group yeah. scheme um, and they have changed the process significantly. Yeah. It's a lot easier. It, yeah. yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm literally in the middle of not having completed my application for a second <laughs> um, round of that. But 
I, I, it is something that absolutely saved my ass a few years ago um, in terms of having access to that. Um, what I would say is that through that application process, when you are very unwell, a lot of support is required um, there that may not exist for someone who doesn't have a good support network and those kinds of things. But um, I, I'm, I'm pleased that you've um, asked about something outside of the work cover context because return to work mostly isn't within the work cover or com care scheme. We're talking about, you know, 50% of the population running off 12-year-old statistics um, since the last National Mental Health Survey. But um, so I'm, I'm pleased that you're sort of bringing that to the discussion in a more generalist um, return to work context. Um, I guess to take it back to work cover, um, <laughs> it's, I guess it's built on a set of ideals, which is the ideal person, the ideal employer and the ideal diagnosis and the ideal family. Um, one of the biggest challenges is getting a very specific diagnosis that there tends to be a lot of messiness around it. And what feels like the biggest bugbear for employers at the moment is adjustment disorder. Um, do you have any tips on how to manage that situation, particularly where there might be some individual factors that may not be making the situation easier? So look, I, I use adjustment disorder with whatever other specifier quite frequently. If there's a, you know, th there's a discrete event um, which results in emotional distress and, and you know, symptoms. Um, and then look at some, you know, by definition once with the adjustment disorder, if you take away the stressor, then within six months or so, the symptoms should subside and the person should go back to normal. That's the definition of an adjustment disorder. Um, sometimes that happens, sometimes that morphs into a um, major depression. Um, and, you know, what I do is, you know, if the person is severely depressed, it's been, you know, 12 months and, you know, then I, I call it as it is, it's major depression. It might have started out as an adjustment disorder, it's morphed into a major depression. Sometimes, you know, you might have someone who's generally anxious and a workplace event or, or other life event tips them into or makes manifest uh, social anxiety disorder or generalized anxiety disorder. So if that's the case, you've got to call it, and, and the test, you know, in, in the case of work cover, is is work a substantial contributing factor? Yeah, that, you know, that that's the test basically. And the, the clinician, the doctor's got to make a judgment about um, whether work was a substantial contributing factor. You look at the history <coughs> prior to the incident what's happened subsequently, and you make a judgment. So look, you know, um, if something's been, symptoms have been going on for three or four years, the person's been removed from that situation, um, then, you know, I tend to say, look, it's major depression or whatever, as opposed to an adjustment disorder. Look, I think it's, there are problems with it, and I think it's, an, it's, it's, it's another one of these examples of where work cover is different from the rest of the world because, you know, I think when you are seeing someone who is unwell and you're just treating them and just thinking about return to work in that context, there's not this massive focus on what the diagnosis is. You know, there's the focus on the treatment and what you do to get them better. I, I think work cover does put this focus on the label and it puts a real focus on the cause as well, obviously. Um, 
in general, I don't really like diagnostic categories that include the cause in it or that are mandated on a cause. Um, you know, we don't go around diagnosing people with um, genetic associated depression or things like that. And I think once you start having the cause wrapped up in the diagnosis, it does, you know, that's one of the reasons I find the concept of burnout particularly problematic as well. And um, so I, I think it is, it, it, it can be problematic, but I think, um, I, I think the answer is less in trying to change individuals' diagnostic practices and more about trying to take the focus away from what the label is and to think about what needs to be done. I guess the other point is that psychiatric diagnoses are fluid mm -hmm. as well. They evolve over time. The diagnosis becomes clearer over time. Um, so that's something else to keep in mind and something we can educate our employers about as well, that, you know, it's not as clear-cut as, um, as in physical illness. And, mm -hmm. and psychiatric diagnoses are constructs, they're hypotheses. Um, rather than, you know, being based in, like, if you, someone's got a heart attack, you do an autopsy, you see a piece of the heart has died, right? When you do an autopsy of someone who's got a mental illness, you don't see that. So these labels are constructs which psychiatrists, doctors have come up with over hundreds of years, and they shift, which is why we have, you know, the original DSM had found how many... <coughs> A hundred diagnoses are less than that, and now we've got how many? So I was involved in a debate last month where the topic was that psychiatric diagnoses have not helped, and that we should move away from them. Um, and I was on the side speaking for that, and sort of saying that really all the tests of what you want from a diagnosis are not passed by psychiatric diagnostic systems as they are at the moment, and that we should sort of. You, you know, stop deluding ourselves about them and move to a, a, a more, um, a less categorical approach to diagnostic formulation. Yeah. Um, it's, it's rather interesting that you're mentioning that it is arbitrary, isn't it? That we decided on two weeks, but not two weeks and three days for a depression. Yeah. Do you think there's a tension that exists um, between the the diagnostic side of things and, you know, that, that answers are provided, I suppose, from, from a um, patient's perspective over a number of years or however long it's been since, um, you know, they've been unwell and, and finally sort of a treatment modality or um, uh, solution has, has been found versus the label that's then attached with that diagnosis and that generates um, stigma, certainly for certain conditions, um, where, but where a label may be required um, for work cover or, you know, a, a specific diagnosis is required. So it's sort of that, that tension of, well, okay, yep, we've been able to diagnose this, then unfortunately having this label um, um, is, it, it is stigmatising for certain conditions. Um, so, you know, what, how do you marry the two um, in order to, to ensure that that person and the organisation, I suppose, um, is able to function um, more fluidly? Um, but, you know, we're still in this very, very um, immature phase, again, of, of, of educating organisations, workplaces around, you know, in the infancy of, of what mental health looks like. So I, I just... It's such a um, paradoxical sort of situation, I think, in terms of having the label 
then it potentially having the, the opposite effect because a stigma may then be attached to that title. Does that I make think, sense? I think it is rare for a workplace being aware of the title or the label or the diagnosis, that having any real benefit. Um, and, and I know they that have to win work yeah. cover, but they don't yeah, otherwise. That's just, yeah. And, and um, you know, I, don't, I, I think it is rare to find that there is benefit in telling your workplace or your manager that I am suffering from generalised anxiety disorder. I think what they need to know sometimes is that these are the types of symptoms I have and these are the symptoms where they present. That's right, like the, but the, the, um, the system kind of, yes. are ne if there's a necessity um, for that label, unfortunately, mm. um, that then, yeah, sort of has the, the opposite. Well, there is in the work one. cover, but I think, yeah, I think you, can, you can look yeah. at the problems that that causes in work cover and use that to inform the discussions you have in non-work cover claims. And so the discussion about disclosure becomes less about, well, should I tell my workplace a label to this? And more about, well, actually, what should I tell my workplace? Do I want to tell them the type of symptoms I'm having or what triggers it? Well, actually, it's quite a good segue because I've had the benefit of seeing it on both sides. I originally trained in HR and then worked in, up through senior management, then had a career change, then ended up in mental health, and now I've been in private practice. Um, for nearly 10 years. And often people see it as um, a conflict of interest, a lot of what goes on in this, rather than competing interests um, in the workplace. So what you would consider don't wanting, not wanting to disclose could be seen as lack of transparency. And often people get caught up in all this. And I often find that that's the problem that they need to overcome before you can get everybody to the table. And rather than seeing it as a fight, rather than sitting down and saying, I don't need to know the diagnosis, I just need to know how that's going to impact the workers that are around you that are picking up the slack. How does that affect the timeline of a particular project, etc.? So how do we see this progressing from a conflicting environment where all I, you know, when we were talking through at the beginning, I saw, you know, came up transparency and boundaries and attitudes of workers to get beyond the obstacles to get to the table to talk about solutions. Well, I think part of it is around the, the, the education of these people. You know, like, that's what I say. If you're going to go out and you're going to train managers about mental health, then don't waste your time trying to explain to them the difference between these diagnostic categories. You, you tell the managers about the different symptom types and what their role as manager is in terms of asking those sort of questions. I really like your question because I think it gets to the crux of what this is all about. It's about, it is about... Um, how do you have a really complex conversation where there's a lot of different agendas? Um, and what comes to mind for me is that, you know, it wasn't Are You OK Day, it was quite recently, and I think that, you know, Are You OK Day is all about how do you have a really complex and awkward conversation? But it, it's got a simple answer in the sense that what's needed to be able to talk to somebody else about mental health um, is what you mentioned before about being able to recognise that you're trying to work to understand the other person. The solution. Yeah. And, and then if you could drop your agenda, I think what I notice is when people can drop their agenda to try to understand first, then people relax, and then you can start to try to find solutions. It's hard as well because as the, the client or the employee that it's affected, how can you get empathy if you don't understand the full picture as well mm -hmm. as an employer and trying to help them back into the workforce and making sure that they've got the support services there if needed and when needed as well? I see um, 
HR departments and slash, you know, if they've got a health and safety unit as being that kind of interface between management and the the, the worker. Um, you know, um, so the HR, health and fitness, etc., um, may get further information um, from the actual employee about, you know, what's going on. And what gets fed up to management is really, you know, about fitness for work, you know. And for that we need, you know, HR people, health and fitness people who are, you know, essentially, you know, have a lot of empathy, understanding, um, you know, j just who are in, in touch with, you know, with, with their own emotions, with, with other people's and, and don't view it as, you know, this person's malingering or, or whatever. So we have time for one last question. We've seen, as an exercise physiologist, we've seen a significant change in the acceptance of mental health symptoms and us working with people with mental health symptoms, which has been amazing. Although you have mentioned a number of times tonight how work recovery is set up for musculoskeletal injuries. Is there, does anyone know if there's a change happening within work cover and the way that system's structured to support the significant change in, in some of the injuries that come through, um, through the work cover system? Yeah, I can answer some of that. So we do some work with eye care um, and we also work with a number of um, income protection insurers as well. They are very interested in how to do it um, and they're bringing in um, lots of external supports. We're a startup that they've brought in to do work with them. They're all at the stage of trying to figure it out, but it doesn't look to me as though they know what to do just yet. They have got good people and they're well-intentioned, um, but I think they're kind of really leaning heavily on what academics have been looking at in order to inform practice that hasn't actually come out to be executed yet. It's in the ideation phase and the piloting phase. Um, it's not in the general practice phase that I've seen. Um, so over the recent years, we have the systems of, of work have changed. They do take their time to actually be fully disseminated out there. Um, most claims, particularly in the police fire portfolios, they, if they have a mental health claim, they're also often an exercise physiologist as part of usual care. Um, in the physical space, we are seeing a lot of psychologi secondary psychological and psychosocial issues arising. So in New South Wales Health, for instance, and, and, and increasingly across portfolios, um, within the first couple of days of your claim being handed in for a musculoskeletal claim, you are screened for any psychosocial and, and, and other factors um, so that a lot of people now are off being offered um, psychological assistance for a, for a primary physical injury as well. And so it is being slow to change and, and it starts out in one employer and then gradually seeps out. But um, but definitely it's a whole new world than, than even what it was three or four years ago. Sam Harvey is uh, a key reason for a lot of that, particularly in the emergency services areas. But um, but, but I would say that, yes, it's, it's a whole new world, particularly now we've done a lot of customer journey mapping and, and if you walk into a lot of claims managers, you'll see that they've got personas. Um, so if we get a claim for a police officer, we can probably match them to one of eight. They'll be likely one of eight types of people. Um, they might have shades of being one person and another, but um, there are all these things that are going on that are, that are starting to really be 
making a difference and, and it's just actually getting the success stories out there too um, because we know that the media does does report a lot of the negative ones but but we are actually getting some really good progress um, as a result of all those those small changes. Just to clarify, I'm not responsible for the eight personas but yeah. some of the other stuff. Um, <laughs> but, but can I just say one thing, for people who are not working in the work cover space who might feel left out by that response where these work cover claims are all now getting access to EPs. Um, we have an exercise physiology clinic here at the Black Dog that anyone can refer their person to and that they will get that sort of similar sort of EP as part of their recovery, if people want. So we're coming to the end of our evening and I really want to give the last word to Polly who's experienced these you know, challenges of return to work and what are some of the tips you would give for people who are listening, who are facing mental health challenges and have been struggling with return to work? What are some helpful tips? Um, I think first and foremost um, is to let yourself be unwell when you are. Um, and that can be incredibly challenging to um, allow yourself to just surrender to what's happening sort of instinct is to try and fight it and um, particularly if you've had a, an extended period of, of recovery um, and you might have relapse, um, I think giving yourself permission to do that is first and foremost. Um, it's, it's a really hard road to navigate and we've sort of touched on some things here um, already around graduated sort of exposure to things but when we're really looking at you know, from the point of not being able to get out of bed to not being able to shower or, you know, leave the house, those sorts of things, to, um, to I guess, th those baby steps. So delegate where you can when you're starting to sort of gain some level of, of um, improve. Um, expose yourself uh, gradually to, you know, going to the shops, exposing yourself, you know, um, public transport, getting used to being around people again and engaging um, again. Have your um, your sleep routines um, modified to sort of kick back into what um, a working routine might look like because we know that, you know, sleep um, is, is um, a, re a really huge uh, risk factor in terms of... Um, of, of protective factors and, and what can uh, lead to relapse. Um, I also, uh, in terms of medication regimes too, uh, that is one of, uh, I think, a really significant um, challenge for people. A lot of the side effects, um, certainly for antipsychotic medications, uh, fatigue, weight gain, um, those kinds of things are, um, can be very, very difficult to sort of throw into your daily schedule um, where you have a full workload um, to get through to the point where, you know, sort of at lunchtime sneaking into your car to have a nana nap. Um, so as, as much as you can um, put those things into place in the in the weeks leading up to, to dipping your toe back in um, is what I would encourage. And um, I guess... Also knowing when to pull back um, and having your, having, having I guess your toolkit, and I know this is sort of thrown around a lot and, um, you know, exercise and, you know, where's, you know, make sure you, your cup's, you know, not too empty and use all of those things. And we know that we're all really shit at doing exercise and doing all the things that we should be doing to take care of ourselves. But um, I think that 
if you have some grounding techniques that do um, help you centre, do help you re relax or at least, you know, get yourself okay, um, having those kinds of go-tos and plans sort of in your, in your pocket um, if you, you know, in, in that struggle, I, I guess, into to going back to normal life sort of thing. Um, and, but it's, it's hard <laughs> is the reality of it. It's really bloody hard. Um, and, you know, you, not, you need a very good support network around you. I think it's a, it's a team effort. And, um, and certainly, you know, I've been fortunate to have um, people around me who've, who've helped me in that, that journey when things have been, you know, when I've been at that, that, um, that entry point. So thank you very much. Um, to our panel, to Polly, to Naresh, Jay and Sam for tonight's um, really engaging panel. So we've come to the end of it. I really want to give a round of applause to our fantastic panellists. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.